regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. to um, another episode of Datacast and today I have the pleasure to speak with uh, Ari Marcos. He is a research scientist at Facebook AI Research, currently working on understanding the mechanisms underlying neural networks computation and function and using these insights to build a machine learning system more intelligently. In particular, uh, Ari has worked on a variety of topics including uh, understanding the lottery ticket hypothesis, uh, the mechanisms underlying common regularizers, and the properties predictive of generalization, uh, as well as methods to compare representation across networks, the role of single units in computation, and on strategies to measure abstraction in neural networks representation. Uh, Previously, he worked at DeepMind in London and earned his PhD in neurobiology at Harvard University, uh, using machine learning to study the cortical dynamics underlying evidence accumulation for decision-making. So Ari, uh, Glad to have you on the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Let's start out a little bit with your educational background. So, uh, you know, you study physiology and neuroscience at uh, University of California in San Diego uh, for your undergrad. And I believe that you had a chance to, uh, you know, do some neuroscience research uh, on adult neurogenesis at uh, the Gage Lab. So, would you mind, uh, you know, quickly going over your college experience? So I, I entered college, you know, dead set on becoming a brain surgeon, actually. Something that I, I think I decided when I was very young and just was very focused on that. So majored in neuroscience. Early on in, uh, I was like a very pre-med sort of person. Uh, and early on in, in, in college, I went to some talk about, about how to get into medical school. And they mentioned that research experience is a great way to do that. So I ended up basically looking through all the neuroscience professors uh, at UCSD. And I was most interested in the work that Fred Gage was doing, which is focused on adult neurogenesis, which if you're not familiar, is basically this concept that we actually have newborn neurons uh, during adulthood. You may have heard that you're born with all the neurons you're ever going to have. That's actually not true. It's mostly true, but it turns out that you actually do have uh, newborn neurons during adulthood in two areas of the brain, the campus and in the olfactory bulb. So I I sent a cold email uh, asking to volunteer in the lab and Fortunately for me, he accepted. And very quickly, as I started working in the lab, I realized that I just absolutely loved research and was far more interested in research than I was in the actual practice uh, of medicine. And kind of as I you know, moved through my college experience, I kind of shifted further and further away from thinking about uh, kind of becoming a medical doctor and a surgeon. So initially I was gonna be a neurologist, not a surgeon anymore. Uh, and then, okay, maybe I'll get an MD, PhD. And then eventually realized that, no, all I really care about is the research side of things. And it was a really wonderful experience. I was really fortunate to have great mentors who were willing to take the time with me to teach me the basics of how to read a scientific paper and how to design good experiments. 
and how to, in general, just think about research. Yeah. And honestly, that defined most of my college experience. I ended up working quite a bit in that world. <laughs> I see. And it seems like you, uh, you accumulate a lot of great uh, mentorship, from, at least from, from, from your professors, in terms of building good habits uh, as an effective researcher. And, you know, after that, uh, can, can you talk about your decision to further your education and pursue a PhD in uh, neurobiology at Harvard? Yeah, yeah. So, so in the Gage Lab, I worked on what would be called molecular neuroscience. So I was focusing on kind of individual proteins and, and how they impact uh, development and how they impact neural function, but very much focusing on a single, neuro, a single neuron level, which I would almost view as kind of the same as doing molecular biology, just happening to be in, neuro, in neurons. But the techniques that we use would be the same as um, I would use if I was studying liver cells or cardiac cells or, or any other part of the body. Um, but what makes neurons really special is that they have this ability to transmit information. And that becomes kind of especially unique once you have groups of neurons and populations of neurons that are working together to perform complex functions. This is typically called systems neuroscience. It also hinges on computational neuroscience, where two kind of fields work together. But at the time, I kind of just had this vague notion that I really wanted to work on circuits. So as I started going through the interview process for PhD programs, I, I was just really kind of awestruck by the systems neuroscience and kind of circuits talent that was at the, the Harvard Neurobiology Department. And fortunately, I, I, I was accepted and ended up deciding to go and, and uh, you know, was very lucky to end up with a fantastic PI, Chris Harvey, who, you know, I think was probably the most instrumental person in my development uh, as a scientist, really taking me from, you know, having some experience uh, from undergrad, but very much not as the leading um, player in, in a research project, not as the driver, but more kind of the assistant to teaching me the skills for how do, you, how do you conduct good research when you are the driving person? And then even more importantly, how do you communicate that research? Um, because communication is you know, really just as important as doing the research itself. If, I, if I, I can make an amazing discovery, but if my paper is difficult to read or people don't care, then there kind of was no point in me doing that research in the first place. And that's one of the things that I think Chris really, really, really uh, drilled into me, which has been tremendously useful as my career has progressed. Yeah, so, so let's uh, dig a little bit deeper on, on kind of your research during your PhD. You know, your work at Harvard, your, your thesis is called Population Dynamics in Palatal Cortex During Evidence Accumulation for Decision Making. Uh, in particular, you develop uh, different methods to understand how, uh, as you already mentioned, neuronal circuits perform the computation necessary for complex behavior. Could you mind sharing the sort of the background and um, some of the findings from, from this research? Yeah, absolutely. So evidence accumulation is kind of one of these, evidence accumulation for decision-making is, is generally one of these kind of bigger topics in, in neuroscience because it shows up everywhere. So you can think, for example, in your daily life, you know, if you're driving down the street and you want to make, you want to know whether you should turn left or right at intersection, you're going to use a lot of different information to come to that uh, decision. You might use your navigation system, you might use street signs, um, maybe you're following someone and you're, you know, looking at their headlights, or sorry, their taillights, but you're going to take all these different pieces of information, some of which might conflict with one another, and ultimately you're going to integrate them all together to come to some, you know, some, some behavioral output or some decision. Um, but we don't really understand that much about how that actually happens on a neuronal level uh, and a computational level. In general, a lot of neuroscience prior to kind of starting in the late 2000s, 
was very focused on individual neurons. Um, so basically, I would try to find a neuron which seems to be correlated with some behavioral output, like going left or going right. Um, but one of the things that was really exciting about neuroscience um, when I kind of really was getting into it, you know, at, around 2011 when I started at Harvard, was that all of a sudden we had this ability to record for not just one neuron at a time, but, you know, tens or hundreds or even thousands of neurons at a time. And this allows us to really start to answer these questions about how do large populations of neurons work together to perform the computations necessary for various tasks. And that's one of the things that Chris had developed during his postdoc before he joined as a new professor at Harvard. I happen to be his first student, um, which is a which is a very fun experience. And one of the things that Chris developed was basically a, a technique for allowing mice to play video games in virtual reality. Um, so they'd run on this styrofoam ball that actually works very similar to how a computer mouse ball would work, uh, like an old an older style computer mouse. Um, and then we'd immerse them, immerse them in a mini IMAX and show a first person view of a maze. And the mouse could, by running on the ball, control where he was uh, in the maze. Um, and what's cool about that is that enabled the mice to perform these complex decision tasks without their head moving, which meant we could use some advanced imaging techniques, mainly called two-photon imaging, to record these kind of many, many hundreds of neurons at the same time. So a lot of the first half of my PhD was focused on finding ways to uh, train mice to perform these complex decision-making tasks. Uh, so the main task I used was when a mouse would kind of run down a hallway and they'd see some cues on the left and some cues on the right. Um, and they'd have to accumulate whether there were more cues on the left or more cues on the right uh, to determine whether they should turn left or right at the end of a T-shaped maze. So this requires some evidence accumulation. There was also a delay period where the mice had to remember what they were supposed to do. And uh, so a lot of the first couple years was spent just figuring out how do we train mice to do this? Uh, kind of trying to anthropomorphize mice and being like, what would a mouse care about? Would they care about this? Would they care about that? Turns out that I was at least very bad at guessing what mice were going to care about. There are things that I thought they would absolutely care about, but they didn't at all, and things that I thought were completely irrelevant that it turns out the mice would grasp onto to learn to um, learn to solve this task. But that was kind of the first half of my PhD. And then the second half of my PhD, I now eventually got the mice to perform this task, and we had all these data of, you know, these are the activity of large populations of neurons um, while the mouse is doing this. And then I was faced with this task of kind of, you know, how to analyze this data. That's how I started getting into machine learning, but, but, but kind of ultimately what, what, this all, what, what we ended up finding out here is that uh, the area of the brain that we looked at, parietal cortex, was operating in this way that's kind of akin to what's called reservoir computing um, or liquid state machines. And what that means is that when something happens, when, when, there, when there's an input to cortex or, or to the mouse, the impact of that input reverberates over time in such a way that I can determine not only where the mouse is, but everything that the mouse has seen in the past. Because in a, a given activity pattern of neurons doesn't just say what's happening presently, it actually tells you, it's very path dependent in a, in a sense, so it actually tells you about everything that's happened in the past. Um, so that was one of the main exciting findings. The other big finding was that despite the fact that researchers have generally focused on individual neurons, um, primarily for methodological reasons, it turns out that there was tons of information that was present in the neurons that researchers would usually throw out that look really confusing, where you, where you look at this neuron and it doesn't seem like it prefers one thing or the other, but if I look at enough of these neurons together at the same time, it turns out that it can decode tons of information about the mouse's upcoming choice, about what the mouse has seen, um, about what the mouse did in previous trials. Um, you could learn a lot 
which kind of suggests that the brain is act acting in, in this uh, kind of liquid state machine uh, reservoir computing fashion. Thanks for kind of sharing that uh, very detailed period of, of your PhD. I, I, and it kind of really show, you know, you need to come up with a lot of uh, different hypotheses and constantly, you know, try out, you know, different things and, you know, and, and fail at them in order to actually uh, get, get some meaningful results at the end. And I believe uh, a major component of, of this thesis is uh, utilizing machine learning to analyze all of these, you know, data uh, from the mice uh, that you mentioned and try to identify some of these features of the uh, neuronal population activity that um, affect decision making. So, uh, well, first of all, when, when did you first get exposed to machine learning and how did you, how did you learn machine learning uh, in order to, you know, uh, bring that into the research? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, kind of as I mentioned, the first half of my PhD was really focused on, on more kind of typical experimental neuroscience sorts of work, like, uh, you know, training mice and stuff. But then the second half of my PhD, eventually I just had these large data sets and it was all computational at that point. And now the goal is just to make sense of these data. And these kind of were, you know, pretty large data sets uh, by neuroscience standards. And it's, it's kind of funny. I, I, if, you, if you look back at my qualifying exam, which is something that you do kind of about a year and a half into your PhD, once you're starting to get your feet under you and you're starting to think about what your project's going to be for your PhD, you write a proposal of kind of what you expect to happen and what you're planning to do. And if you look at my proposal, it's very focused on kind of training mice, but there's very little actually about how we're going to analyze these data because I don't think we, we really understood um, the challenge of de dealing with high dimensional data sets. Honestly, I, I came to machine learning mostly out of necessity because I had this large data set. I didn't know what to do with it. I had tried doing kind of some very simple analyses, like, for example, um, doing uh, dimensionality reduction techniques like PCA, and then just kind of plotting trajectories of how the neural activity changed in the kind of low dimensional space. But it's hard to actually interpret much uh, for them, from those sorts of analyses. So it was through this need that I started engaging with machine learning. And at the time, I made use of kind of a, a lot of the fantastic resources that are available on the internet. So kind of my first real exposure to machine learning, I would say, would be uh, Andrew Ng's machine learning course that I think, you know, many, many, many thousands of people have gotten use out of. And then through taking more courses, and eventually I took some machine learning courses in, in grad school. But it was very much this necessity of, of trying to figure out how to analyze my data. And what I ended up finding out was that as I, as I got more and more into machine learning, I found that I was more interested in that uh, than I was in uh, neuroscience, you know, and that was one of the main factors which led to me eventually changing fields. <laughs> yeah, and really just, just picking, picking up on what you're just talking about. So uh, after finishing your PhD at Harvard, you moved to London and you start working as a research scientist at DeepMind. Uh, and if anyone in the field probably know, you know, DeepMind is a world-class uh, organization focused on uh, building uh, machining systems that learn how to solve problems and uh, advance scientific discovery. Um, yeah, so how did this uh, opportunity come about? Yeah, so near the end of, of my PhD, you know, I, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do next. I knew I didn't want to stay in academia and in neuroscience, but uh, kind of was, I was debating a number of options. Uh, one option was to become a data scientist. One option was to kind of try to do a more computational neuroscience sort of postdoc, which would only be really focused on uh, analysis and not as much on actually any, doing any experiments myself. But the kind of the dream option was to be able to continue doing research, but in the context of deep learning and machine learning and AI. And the, my thought had been kind of that, that these problems actually weren't too dissimilar. Uh, what I had spent most of my PhD thinking about was how do I look at kind of these neural activity patterns over time and make some sense of them? 
which is actually a very similar problem to what we have in machine learning, where we now have the, you know, it's become an empirical science, where we now have these gigantic models, which we don't really know how they work. We have some guesses here and there, um, and we know that some things work and some things don't work, but we know that more, mostly through heuristics and things like that, rather than uh, kind of really grounded empirical analyses. So I, I, became, I, was very, I became very excited about the idea that that might be a place where I could really make an impact in deep learning by taking these sorts of skills and um, patterns that I had picked up, analyzing neural data and applying that to artificial neural data. <laughs> so, so I ended up going to uh, NeurIPS or NIPS as, as, as it was called at the time in, in 2015. That was my first, my first machine learning conference. And one, it was very exciting to just see all the amazing research that was being done. That was especially in 2015, deep learning was changing so dramatically. Now, now the field has asymptoted a little bit. Now you can see the big growth in self-supervised learning and in, and in uh, a lot of NLP work. Um, but at the time, kind of the, model, the models and, and benchmarks were changing dramatically you know, from conference to conference, let alone year to year. And that was just extremely exciting. And uh, serendipitously, I ended up uh, meeting some people from DeepMind who had uh, also had neuroscience backgrounds. And, you know, that was one of the things that separated DeepMind, especially at that time, was that DeepMind, you know, was founded by Demis Asabis and Shane Legg and, and Mustafa Suleiman. Um, Demis had a, a neuroscience background. He had gotten his PhD in neuroscience, although in human neuroscience, uh, which is a little different, but closely related. He, you know, cared a lot about taking that different perspective. And, you know, fortunately, they were able to go through the interview process and did well enough that I, you know, ended up uh, joining um, and was able to kind of do what I wanted of, of, of sticking in and kind of really doing basic research. That shows how, uh, you know, you, you the, the utility of how you can leverage, learn how to communicate and, and translate some of the skills from uh, from, from a different uh, domain and, and apply that to, to machine learning. And I think that uh, that's, that's, that's great to hear, especially for those people who coming from a, from a different scientific background to try to get to the field. Yeah, so so uh, at DeepMind, one of the research topics that you focus on is the generalization of neural networks. One of your earlier papers is called On the Importance of Single Direction for Generalization, which is presented at the, uh, the ICRR conference back in 2018. I got a chance to kind of read through a little bit from, from the paper abstract, and it said that essentially, you know, by deleting uh, neurons inside the network, uh, your team shows that, you know, the networks that generalize well are much more robust to perturbation of their hidden state than those that generalize poorly in a variety of contexts. Can you share a little bit about the motivation for this work as well as the core contributions? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, this, this paper is kind of an interesting one in that it kind of has like two different stories that are kind of sandwiched into one. The first story, which is uh, the, the bigger one in that paper, uh, about looking at the uh, kind of robustness to neuron deletion for networks which generalize and networks which uh, don't or which memorize, um, was really inspired by some landmark work that was done by Chiwan Zhang uh, and others that was actually one best paper at iClear 2017, I believe, where they, they basically showed that ImageNets, or that, that modern models at the time, you know, VGs and, Res and ResNets, could memorize all of ImageNets. Um, and the way they showed this is that they randomized all of the labels in ImageNet. Um, so typically, all the airplanes are called airplanes, and all the cats are called cats, and all the dogs are called dogs. Um, but what they did is they made it so that you know, this particular image of a dog we're going to call an airplane, and this different image of a dog we're going to call a cat. And this different image of a dog, we're going to call a house. So really what that does is it, it removes all the structure from the problem. So there should be no way to generalize on this task. The only way to solve this would be to memorize each and every image 
and what you're supposed to call each and every specific image. Um, and what was shocking was that Chiwan uh, showed that with kind of basically no modifications to our current models or the models at the time, um, we could get them to learn to memorize and overfit uh, to the entire you know, image and scale data set. Um, and it only took the models about three and a half times as long as learning the you know, good function, uh, which actually generalizes to a test set. So that was really interesting because it suggests that you know, deep models have this capacity to memorize, and yet they don't. When we train uh, deep neural networks, typically they do generalize, at least uh, in the context of uh, you know, new samples from the same distribution, which is kind of the, the, the machine learning soft form of generalization, I would say. But they, they do learn these somewhat generic you know, functions. Uh, they don't just memorize. Um, and that's really surprising. And kind of this question is like, why? And uh, most critically, maybe they, networks are actually doing some combination of these two. Maybe they're memorizing some things and they're learning generic solutions for others, for other inputs. Um, so is there some way that we can look at the properties of a learned network to understand the extent to which it's memorizing or generalizing? So that was the motivation for this project. And um, then the other side of, uh, of, of motivation, kind of more methodologically, is that in neuroscience, one of the experiments I always wanted to do was to take neurons which were functionally characterized in some way. So a neuron which likes, you know, which likes turning left, um, and then just selectively turn off all of those neurons. And that's something that which is very difficult to do uh, in neuroscience, if not impossible to do, uh, just because of methodological constraints, um, but it's trivially easy in artificial neural networks. Um, so, so, so the motivation for that project was kind of combining those two ideas. And what we did is basically, we took neural networks that were trained on different proportions of random labels, which effectively can tell you how much they're memorizing or how much they're generalizing. We know if we train them on all randomized labels and they must be memorizing. And uh, if they're trained on partial, uh, you know, 50% corrupted labels and 50% true labels, then they, they have to memorize at least some fraction of the data set, but not the entire data set. And we looked at basically how robust are neural networks if I just go ahead and cumulatively start deleting neurons. Um, and what we found was that networks which generalized well, or which are trained on the true labels, um, were much more robust uh, to this sort of neuron deletion, suggesting that they use far less of the network's capacity than, ne than, than networks which memorize. Networks which memorize really needed to use every single neuron effectively in order to solve that task, which kind of makes sense uh, when you think about it. Um, and we applied that to a number of other, uh, other areas and kind of showed that this effect is robust across a different number of models and data sets. Um, the second half of that paper um, was focused on this kind of question of uh, interpretability. Um, a lot of methods to try to explain how neural networks work have focused on kind of finding specific individual neurons which are really easy to understand. So for example, a cat neuron. Um, the cat neuron was kind of being very famous by one of the very early deep, early at least in the deep learning revolution. So 2011, but not really in the context of all deep learning papers. Papers from Kwok Lee uh, at Google Brain, where they you know, found that there was a cat neuron that kind of popped out uh, of an unsupervised learning problem. And that's a neuron which seemed to fire only when it saw cats and was silent all the other times. And there have been a lot of examples of this since. Uh, OpenAI had the sentiment neuron uh, a couple years ago. And there's a lot of work that's kind of focused on trying to find these interpretable individual units. But no one ever asked, are these units which are easily interpretable actually any more important than the units which are really tough to interpret and seem really confusing and seem to respond to everything? As I mentioned in my PhD research, I had shown that in the brain, uh, it turns out that these units which are really hard to interpret actually play a really important role 
and have uh, a lot of information that can be encoded. So I had a kind of a prior that maybe, maybe it's a little bit more complex than that. Um, so what we tried doing was basically deleting individual units and looking at basically whether the units which are more easily interpretable, um, we call these more class-selected units, um, whether those units, when you delete them, had a larger negative impact on the model, so the, the loss went up by a larger amount, than um, deleting a unit which was very confusing. If you expected, if you expect that the you know, super easy to interpret neurons are more important, you would expect to see a relationship like that. Um, in contrast, we actually found that there was effectively no correlation um, between these two things. And if anything, actually, there was a negative correlation suggesting that the less interpretable units were more important. Um, and that was mostly driven by uh, the early layers of the network, which kind of makes sense, because in the early layers of the network, the most important channels in a comnet are going to be your edge detectors. Um, is it a vertical edge? Is it a horizontal edge? And it turns out that you know, those units, are, or those channels, are unlikely to be selective for dogs or cats or airplanes, unless if you think that dogs have more vertically oriented edges than cats on average. Even though those units are, are very not selective, it turns out they're also really, really important. But once you go beyond those first couple layers, it really seems like there was no relationship at all, which suggests that if we want to understand neural networks, we probably have to look beyond finding kind of the handful of neurons which seem to really tell us what's going on in the network, unfortunately. It actually means that we have a harder task ahead of us uh, for understanding how these networks work. Right. Thanks for being very detailed with the description of that paper. Um, yeah, I actually, you know, had to read the, uh, the paper from Zhang, uh, Rethink Generalization, right, for one of my class last year, so definitely very familiar with it. And uh, just, just a quick side note, right, when you say deleting neurons, is any, I'm just curious, is there any uh, connection between, you know, that approach and uh, dropout popular techniques that also kind of like essentially uh, restrict the capacity of neuron nets to, to a handful of layers? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, so, I mean, effectively what we did by deleting the neurons was kind of a post hoc form of dropouts. So dropouts typically done during training um, as well. We didn't do anything special during training. The models were trained as normal, uh, but then just kind of at test time, we would do this deletion. But it turns out there's actually a pretty subtle distinction between what dropout does and this kind of capacity problem. So what dropout does is, is it will limit the capacity of the network, but only up until the dropout probability. So say I train a network with a dropout probability of 0.5, then up until 0.5, I should, up until I've dropped 50% of the neurons, I should expect there to be no degradation in performance whatsoever because the network was trained explicitly to handle, you know, dropping up to 50% of the neurons. But as soon as I go beyond that to 51% of the neurons, the network doesn't care anymore. The network wasn't trained to deal with that. And what we observed basically was that the same exact effects that we saw uh, in the context of networks trained without dropout, that uh, generalizing networks were more robust than uh, memorizing networks, that phenomenon still occurred in networks trained with dropout. It just didn't start until the dropout probability. So basically all the curves would look the same until 50%. And then as soon as you get to 51%, networks which memorize start getting hurt. Networks which generalize are fine. And once you get to 70%, you see that networks which are memorizing can barely perform the task at all. Their performance has dropped to 10% or something like that, uh, whereas the generalizing networks, again, are still performing at high accuracy. So it seems like dropout actually doesn't fundamentally change this phenomenon of the fact that networks um, that memorize uh, will be uh, much more susceptible to neuron deletion and will uh, rely on a, much, on a much larger set of their neurons. It just kind of shifts where that point is over. You can imagine kind of these curves and just squishing them horizontally, changing the aspect ratio. Uh, and that's effectively what dropout does.
uh, in this context. So, so they're, they're related, but, but actually have pretty subtle differences in, in, how, in their impacts. Thanks for uh, distinguish those, those uh, that, that differences. Following that work, George, your next paper is called Insights on Representational Similarity in Neural Networks with Canonical Correlation, presented at the NeuroRips conference uh, in 2018. So, so this paper you know, shows that uh, networks that generalize converge to more similar solutions than those which memorize. Uh, and another finding is that uh, wider networks converge to more similar solutions than uh, narrow networks. So yeah, good mind sharing the insights from this work and kind of uh, you know discuss some of the main main differences between generalizing networks and memorizing networks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this work was done in, in very close collaboration with Maitre Abdu at uh, Google Brain. We were co-first authors on this work, and also with Sammy Benjia. And this work was kind of actually kind of unifying some of the data that I had from the paper we were just discussing. Um, where I trained lots and lots of different neural networks with different degrees of generalization or memorization. Um, and Mitra had a previous paper that was published at NeurIPS 2017 about focusing on this thing called SVCCA that I just thought was, was a fantastic uh, piece of work. And what that paper was trying to do was trying to understand how do you compare representations across different neural networks that were trained with different random seeds. Um, it turned out this is actually a pretty hard problem. Um, because even if I have two networks which are effectively doing the exact same thing, there's not necessarily going to be a one-to-one neuron-to-neuron mapping between these neural networks. And there's a paper uh, from 2014 from Jason Yasinski on, uh, called Convergent Learning, which looks at this and finds that while there is some parallels, uh, it's not a very strong one. So that means it's very hard to ask, have these two networks learn the same thing? Um, CCA is this very old statistical technique. Uh, that date back, dates back to the 30s, which basically just says, if I have two basis sets, so I have two you know, um, matrices, say, of uh, observations by activations, you know, so I have many different inputs, and I have, say, the activity of all the neurons for all those inputs, so I have these two big matrices, um, find out how well these two matrices can be correlated if I can do any linear transformation I want. So basically, if I can rotate it, or I can do some affine transform, Assuming I can find the best uh, linear transformation I can, um, how correlated are these two matrices? So what's nice about this is it, it throws away any sort of variance you might get for uh, rotations of the bases or shuffling of, of, of which neuron does what. Um, all of that can kind of be corrected by one of these linear transforms. Um, and uh, in Mitra's paper, previous paper on SDCCA, she had used this to show a bunch of really neat things about neural networks, like the fact that early layers converge to their final representation before later layers, um, and stuff like that. Um, so we teamed up kind of with the idea of, hey, what if we take CCA and we apply it to kind of this question, to these questions of, of generalizing and memorizing networks? And one of the main findings, as you mentioned, was that networks which generalize well, so if we train kind of many networks, uh, which all achieve kind of pretty good generalization performance, but with different random seeds, and then we uh, use CCA to look at the pairwise distance between all of these networks, um, what we found was that they were substantially more similar than the networks trained on random labels uh, were to one another. So networks trained on, on randomized labels were really learning uh, entirely different uh, solutions. And what's even more interesting about this was that even if we take the ex exact same randomization of the labels, so the task is exactly the same for these uh, random, randomized labels networks, um, but we just use different random seeds, um, they're just as different as if we were looked at the difference between the randomized labels and the true labels which means that the diversity of solutions you get when you're memorizing is just as large as if you were to learn an entirely different task 
altogether. Um, because you can think of kind of each of these uh, label permutations as different tasks. So that was a really surprising result to us. That it really suggested that kind of memorizing networks are really learning, uh, they're, they're each memorizing in their own special individual way. Whereas when you generalize, you actually are learning something, networks actually learn something which is consistent. Now that said, one of the things which we were not able to answer in this paper, and I don't think I've actually seen a satisfactory answer to since, is that CCA is very useful in that, you know, we can get a distance. So I can say these networks are this similar to one another. But it's a little bit harder to say what aspects of them are similar and what aspects of them are dissimilar. And that's something that we, we never actually really nailed down in that paper. And, and still haven't since. I, I like to kind of, this is one of the things that I've been thinking about is kind of how, what we can do going forward is one of the things we found, right, was that even among the generalizing networks, they were definitely more similar than memorizing networks, but they weren't identical to one another. They were still actually fairly dissimilar to one another. So presumably the, the ways in which they are different were, uh, you know, irrelevant to the performance. Is there, can we quantify what that is? Can we quantify uh, and understand what was in common? Because if we can understand what's in common, then maybe we can just directly optimize for that uh, and train networks to generalize better kind of out of the box. Um, there are a number of other, of other observations in that paper. One other one that I just want to mention very briefly was that we found that even if you look at among networks which uh, generalize very well and are trained with um, slightly different hyperparameters, what you find is that the solutions that they uh, converge to have these distinct clusters where there are lots of solution networks that you look at that maybe achieve the exact same generalization performance. Um, you know, they get the same performance on the test set and yet actually are doing it in completely different ways. And if you change the learning rate a little bit, you're probably actually changing this nature of the solution that the networks converge to. Now we don't, again, we don't really understand what's special about solution A versus solution B, but it would be very useful to understand kind of what differs about these things, because maybe we actually prefer one solution to another, and we want to incentivize networks to converge to one over the other. Yeah, so that was, that, those are the main contributions of, of that work. <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like that, uh, that might be an interesting direction for anyone who is interested in kind of doing research in, you know, neural networks generalization to, to conduct experiment further, right? Yeah. So another topic that you also focus on is representation learning and abstraction for intelligent system. In the paper, measuring abstract reasoning in neural networks being presented at uh, the ICML conference back in 2018, uh, Joachim at DeepMind proposed a data set as well as a challenge uh, designed specifically to prove abstract reasoning. And this is uh, inspired by a very well-known human IQ test. Uh, and uh, based on my understanding, this challenge, uh, you know, enables, you know, the researcher to measure which concept in the task that the neural networks have abstracted and which concept that they have not. Can you um, unpack the main thesis from this paper? And, you know, why do you think this is a proper way to measure abstract reasoning in neural networks? Yeah, so I mentioned a little bit earlier this notion of kind of generalization that we use, which is actually very weak, which is new samples from the same distribution. Um, and that's typically how we define generalization in the context of machine learning. You know, for example, the CIFAR-10 uh, training and test sets were generated in the exact same way to the same exact distribution of examples. They're just different examples. And to me, that's kind of a, a very odd and weak definition of generalization. If I were to ask a layperson, what do they think about when they think of the term generalizing um, or generalization, they probably will give me some answer that looks like, um, well, it's when you learn something in one context and then you apply it in a, some novel context that you've never seen before. Well, that suggests that we actually should have some distribution shift. 
meaning that I should be able to, for example, if I learn to recognize dogs outside, I should also be able to recognize dogs inside. Um, currently, our neural networks are terrible at this. If you change even the slightest statistical properties of the training distribution, networks will fail terribly. Modern neural networks are not very good at out distribution and generalization. Although getting better as more and more people uh, devote their efforts to improving uh, networks in this regard. And one of the challenges here is that to some extent, this question is binary. You either have you know, generalization to, the same, to new samples from the same distribution or it's out of distribution. But there are lots of different kinds of out of distribution. You might have an out of distribution where it's really close or you might have an out of distribution where you know, it's com a completely different environment in almost every way except for one. So the goal in this paper was to, to design a data set in which we could very clearly distinguish between different forms of out of distribution generalization. And also it's worth mentioning, I just want to uh, highlight, this work was led by Adam Santoro and David Baird and Felix Hill, who are just wonderful collaborators at BeatMind. Um, and then also done, and then kind of Tim Lillycraft and I were kind of more advised uh, on this work. But yeah, so, 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 our, so our idea was basically to use this, uh, kind of design a new data set that was inspired by this old IQ test called Raven's Progressive Matrices, which I imagine many people may have taken at some point in their lives. Um, basically the way these tests work is that you have a three by three grid of images um, where the bottom right image is empty. And there's some pattern that can occur along the rows and or the columns of this kind of grid of images. So for example, maybe you'll find that in the upper left image, you'll have one square in the middle, in the top middle image, you'll have two squares and in the middle, and then and sorry, in the top right image, you'll have three squares. So kind of as you're going left to right along the, along uh, across columns, or along a row, you see that the kind of the number of shapes is increasing. Um, and based off of that rule, you might be able to infer kind of what should show up in the bottom right. Maybe in the lower, in the, in the lower left, you see three triangles. In the middle left, uh, sorry, in the bottom middle, you see four triangles. So then in the, in the bottom right, you should see five triangles. That's, a, that's the most simple version of the rules. You, that's incrementing, or what we called in that, in that paper of progression. Um, we also did much more complicated things like ands and ors and xors. And over many different things, not only shape, it could be on color, it could be on line intensity, it could be on lots of various things, and we could have many different rules occurring at the exact same time. So what's nice is that this is a data set where we controlled the generative model for the data set, and as a result, we could start shifting things. So for example, we could measure um, a network's ability to do interpolation. So interpolation would be a situation where, say, that the network's only ever seen odd numbers of objects. It's never seen an even number of objects. So it's seen one object and three objects and five objects, but never two objects or four objects. And in the training set, that's what we have, just the odd numbers of objects. And then in the test set, we now show them even numbers of objects and say, can the network solve this task? If the network does well on that, then, then that would suggest that the network's able to do added distribution generalization in interpolation. Extrapolation uh, would be kind of the opposite of that. Say during training, I've shown the network cases where I have one to five objects but never more than five objects. And now I ask the network, what will happen if there are seven objects? That's extrapolation. It's now going beyond the bounds of anything the network's ever seen before. We can also do experiments for uh, compositionality, which is basically the idea that I've seen two different attributes um, on their own, but I've never seen a particular con combination of attributes. So for example, maybe I've seen squares and I've seen you know, changes of intensity. So a rule where the intensity of the square, the darkness, the saturation of the square changes. Or sorry, I've seen or where, where the saturation of objects changes. But I've never seen the saturation of a square change. 
Whenever I've seen squares, they've always been at a fixed saturation level. And now in the test set, we ask, can you now apply this rule that you understand stuff about, changing saturation, and apply it to squares, which you've never seen before? So we call that kind of compositionality, taking two independent attributes and asking whether you can do the combination of them uh, when you've never seen that particular combination before. So, so the goal with this work was really to just create a data set where, which would enable researchers to benchmark models along these various different axes. And, 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 I, and I think, you know, it's, thankfully, it seems like a, a number of people have tried it. And, you know, I think this is not a perfect data set. There are definitely ones we can make better. But, but I, I, I'm very happy that we were able to kind of call attention to this problem of uh, our distribution generalization and focus on various ways to kind of address it in a more rigorous quantitative uh, manner. I'll be sure to include the link to the, the paper as well as the, the blog post on DeepMind do the show notes so people can have a chance to um, see the, the visual of what you just described in, in, in more details. So maybe they want to try out of their own, try to tackle that, that, that uh, IQ problem. That'd be interesting to, to see. We actually have a, a, a test at the back of the paper uh, in the appendix um, that you can take. Problems are designed to get harder and harder. Um, I will say these problems get very hard. I can do, I think, the easiest half of them pretty, pretty well at this point. Having been one of the designers of this data set. <laughs> but the harder half of them, uh, when you start having three or four rules, are very difficult, uh, even for me to do, uh, having spent a lot of time looking at these. So these things get hard pretty quickly. An extension from that work is another paper called Learning to Make Analogies by Contrasting Abstract Relational Structure. And this one is presented you know, last year at SCR. And uh, in this paper, you know, it, it shows that I guess the main argument is that why architecture choice can be can can influence um, the generalization performance. The choice of data and the manner in which it is presented to the model is even more critical than, than the architecture design. So yeah, can you uh, review the uh, the conducted experiment leading to this finding? Yeah, um, so this work was was led and really driven by Felix Hill, and I think has some really uh, interesting and, and somewhat counterintuitive findings. So this is, as you mentioned, a follow-on to kind of the previous work, although now instead of focusing on this kind of three-by-three three Ravens problem, now focusing on an analogical reasoning problem, which is basically the sorts of problems of A is to B as C is to B. And, and one really important note here that comes up in this paper that I didn't mention is that the way we actually evaluate, uh, evaluated the Ravens work and also how we evaluate this work um, is as multiple choice problems. So a network is given, you know, eight different options for what the kind of empty space can be. And then we kind of score it exactly the same way we'd score a common net provision. We get, you know, eight different values. We do a softmax over those and take the max. So what this paper is showing is that the uh, distractors or the incorrect multiple choice answers that we give actually turn out to be super important for driving network performance. Um, I mentioned interpolation and extrapolation in the context of the Raven's work. One of the things we found there was that interpolation networks could do fairly well. Um, they were worse than if it was the same distribution, but but still pretty good. Extrapolation, on the other hand, was really hard for networks. Networks would basically fall very close to chance when we did extrapolation. So that's a setting of, I've seen one to five objects, I've never seen more than five, and now I seem to do more than five. So what this paper did is it tried to analyze this question, okay, maybe networks are exploiting superficial statistical uh, properties of the different distractors to answer the question. So as an example of that, imagine that you're taking a multiple choice test and 
the test is like a complete the sentence uh, sort of test, you know? So the, 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 the stem of the question is the beginning of the sentence and then the, all the answers are the ends of the sentences. One of the things that I at least used to do when I was in high school and taking tests like this is look for examples where the, the grammar actually doesn't line up between the start and the uh, end of the sentence. You'll find that some of the options actually uh, are grammatically incorrect. Uh, and that almost certainly means that they're not the right answer. Now, I can, and I can, and, and I can do way above chance on questions like that if they have these sorts of mistakes. But I, it wouldn't be because I've actually learned anything that the test is actually testing. I'm just exploiting some of the statistics of the answers in order to get above chance. Maybe I can use that to narrow it down from five options into two options. And now I'm expected to get 50% of the chance, even 50% of the test, even just by random guessing. Um, so, so it turns out that networks are actually doing something similar to this. In our evaluation sets uh, in the Ravens paper, we had uh, we, we looked for distractors or different incorrect multiple choice answers, which were perceptually similar. Which meant that you know if there were triangles in the source image in the source images, it would have triangles. But the triangles wouldn't be structured in such a way that they necessarily completed another rule. So, for example, uh, the say we were actually probing for the XOR rule we could have structured the triangle so that they match the and rule, which would be incorrect, but would be plausible. If we were to structure it that way, where all the distractors had to follow one of the logical rules, we call these semantically similar. And it turns out that this is much harder. If you, if you structure the data set this way, you really can't cheat. You have to use the information about the rule from the first part of the analogy in order to answer the second question. And it turns out that constraining in this way, all of a sudden networks got way better at all of these added distribution generalization regimes, including extrapolation, um, networks get a very strong performance on extrapolation when we use the right sets of distractors. Um, and I think this has a lot of implications for how we structure our problems um, more generally. Uh, we have to think about alternate solutions that networks might take to solve tasks. I think we're in, in deep learning, um, you know, we're very, it's, it's a very common statement that you'll see is in order to solve task X, the network must be doing Y. And there's this assumption because as humans, if I saw, as a human, if I solve task X, I'm gonna solve it by doing Y. I'm gonna use memory or I'm gonna do you know, some complex navigation or this or that. But it turns out that networks are under no such restriction and they're really good at things that we are very bad at. You know, so they can pick up on small differences in pixel values in order to answer questions. Um, and if there's any structure in those pixel values, networks will exploit it. And they will solve tasks in ways that we do not expect them to solve tasks. And you know, this can be good in some ways. It means that networks maybe can get higher performance than a human might be able to get by exploiting these regularities. But it also leads to things like adversarial examples, where you have a network which is you know, solving the task in a fundamentally different way than a human would solve the task. Um, so I think what's, what's exciting about this work is that it suggests that if we can structure our data sets such that we have distractors which really ground the network to learn the task in the same way that a human would or in the way that we're, you know, we're intending for the network to solve the task, we might be able to get networks to learn much more generalizable solutions in the long run. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for putting a lot of explanation on, on, on that idea, using analogies to, to, to further the performance in generalization. And I think, yeah, I think that's, that's, a, that's a great insight that you know, a lot of people can, can develop upon. Moving out, out of that research topic, I want to talk about a very popular work from DeepMind that you contribute to. This one is called Neuro Scene Representation and Rendering. So, so this work is, uh, I guess, received a lot of press back in 
2018, but essentially the paper introduced generative query network, which is a framework within which machines learn to represent scenes using only their own sensors. Yeah, so can you give an overview of the framework as well as the uh, science behind it? Yeah, so GQN uh, was a network that was trained in order to solve this task of view inference. So basically the idea was, uh, if I give uh, the network several different camera views of a scene, say a bunch of objects on a table, can I have, uh, can this network predict what that scene is gonna look like from some entirely novel view uh, that it's never seen before? So maybe I show it, you know, the front of the objects and now I ask, what does it look like on the back? You know, you, we, one of the joking things we call this is almost like matrix bullet time. How you get that moment where, you know, Neo leans back and the bullets are go over and the camera rotates all around him. Uh, and you can see the scene from all these different views. That was kind of the goal of GQN. Can we produce something like that? And the hope was that in order to solve this task, a model would have to, you know, actually learn what the semantic content of the scene is. Like, okay, there's a bullet and it's here, the guy that's leaning back here, and actually understand that versus just doing some statistical fitting to uh, one particular view. So the way this model worked broadly was that we had kind of two components of it. We had a representation network and a generative model. The representation network would take in five different views of the scene from different camera angles and combine that into some embedding of what's going on in that scene. And then the generative model would take in that uh, context embedding as well as a set of camera coordinates, the query coordinates, uh, for what the new view should look like and then would take all that together uh, along with a random sample from a prior and use that to generate a novel uh, view of what that scene should look like. You know, this model was originally, you know, originally invented by Ali Islami and Danilo Resende at DeepMind. And it turns out this works very well. You can do a very good job at approximating a lot of different scenes using this technique. So where I came in uh, in this project was to start to analyze and understand how is the network actually doing this? Is the network actually learning a semantic representation? Um, I think there are kind of two ways that you can view GQN and why it's interesting. Um, one way is, isn't it cool that this uh, is a really neat generative model that can kind of generate these really high fidelity views of various scenes? Um, another view is, isn't it really cool that we can learn this embedding, which is a general purpose embedding of what's happening in that scene? And then we can use that embedding for all sorts of different tasks. Personally, I'm much more interested in that latter question about how do we get this embedding. I almost view the generative model as like the first stage rocket booster that we're need, need, is needed to get us into the upper atmosphere, but then we throw it away. Um, ultimately, all we care about is this embedding network, which is learning um, to semantically understand what's going on in that scene. A lot of the questions that I was most interested in, and a lot of this analysis I did with uh, another awesome research scientist at DeepMind, Abraham Ruderman, was to start to understand what's going on in this embedding. And some of the first questions there really are, do these networks learn, learn canonical representations of the scene? So one of the things we'd hope is that, say I have a scene that has a red sphere and a blue cube. If I take two camera angles of that same scene, then the model would kind of abstract away all the, all the, all the nuisance noise that comes from those two different camera angles and recognize that both of those views are the same and effectively output the same embedding uh, for those views, those views, assuming complete information that both of them have can see the entire scene. And that was kind of the assumption that that was necessary for GQN to solve this task. Um, it turns out that's not how GQN was solving this task at all. Uh, GQN was actually learning a extremely view dependent 
representation, uh, where every view was actually encoded in a completely different way. And based off of that understanding, we were able to kind of make some suggestions for how to change the model, uh, which encouraged the network to be much, much more view invariant uh, and have a much kind of more semantic representation. So that's one of the bits of analysis that we did uh, that I was very proud of. Um, other stuff we did there that was quite cool is we learned that we could uh, do kind of scene algebra in this embedding space. Um, so if you've seen sort of the word algebra sorts of stuff uh, where they do king minus queen plus woman, no, plus man equals woman. I think I got that, I got that right. But uh, that basically you can do this embedding space and you can use for like capitals and countries and all that sort of stuff uh, in, in word embedding space and then get reasonable answers out. We found that we could do something very similar in scene algebra. So I could take a red sphere, I could subtract out a blue sphere and then add in a blue cube and I would get a red cube. And we would do this all in the embedding space. And that was quite cool. Um, we also found, I mentioned this idea of compositionality um, before, we also found that, there, that these models were also compositional. It's quite cool, meaning that um, we could show them during training red objects and spheres, but never show them a red sphere. Uh, and then ask them to you know, uh, generate an image with a red sphere in it and the model could do a great job um, of this. Uh, suggesting that the models, you know, really did actually learn uh, some of this underlying structure. Yeah, that, that's a that's a great video. I think on, on YouTube kind of shows how um, how the agent is, is traversed through that scenario. That I uh, definitely gonna put that in the show notes so people can kind of visualize again how uh, how how the system, you know, accomplish what you what you just mentioned. And I think the idea of like you know you you can you can learn without requiring like domain specific feature engineering or any time-consuming human labeling is, is, is very useful, especially as you know you you, know, you don't have a lot of uh, time or, or computational power to 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 do the labeling efforts. So this idea of trying to learn a generic embeddings is, is super interesting, uh, at least at least from my opinion. Yeah, the yeah. idea is also just to note that they kind of came up in GQN, also are now showing up in many ways in self-supervised learning. Because you can kind of, GQN in some ways kind of you can view as another self-supervised method, although it, it's, a, it's a little bit of a mix. Mm, I see. Um, yeah, so I just, just want to take a, a brief break from deep learning research and I talk about one of the, I guess, you know, your collaboration work in uh, early 2019. You know, this one is called Analyzing Biological and Artificial Neural Networks, Challenge with Opportunities for Synergy. This work is published on the current opinion in neurobiology. It shows that neural analysis has revealed a couple of the similarities between the representation in artificial and biological networks. So yeah, I just want to quickly uh, describe, uh, have, have you quickly describe a couple of your findings. I guess as well at this point, you, you have more experience working with you know, neuroscience, understanding biological neural networks and substantial experience working with uh, ANNs. So yeah, can, can you describe a little bit of the similarities? Yeah, so um, this was a review paper that I wrote along with David Barrett and Yakamaki, both of whom also have kind of neuroscience and ML, you know, sort of the interface between these two fields. Um, and the goal of this paper was, it was aimed at neuroscientists, uh, with the aim of kind of showing, hey, here are a lot of techniques which have been used in the context of uh, deep learning, which could also be applied to neuroscience. Um, so the similarities were kind of more on this meta level of kind of how do we ask questions and how do we analyze data? rather than necessarily saying, okay, the brain does this, and hey, look, also deep learning systems do this. But uh, kind of in that review, we talked about kind of a number of possible approaches. So I, one thing that I mentioned kind of earlier was this notion of CCA. Um, it turns out CCA is actually very well suited for neural data, and it has been used here and there, 
Middle Data, so Dave Cicillo had a paper on it and, and there are some others, but uh, in general, it hasn't been used kind of as much as it probably should be given the constraints. Unfortunately, kind of in neuroscience, we'll never be able to do the same kind of set of experiments that are possible in artificial neural networks uh, just because of methodological constraints. But there are a lot of analysis techniques and approaches that we probably can use. So this paper is really designed at kind of showing some of these approaches, talking about some approaches to dimensionality reduction, which have been done in, in the context of machine learning and arguing that, you know, there really is a place for these techniques in the neuroscience literature. And can, I think they can really serve quite a bit to help uh, further understanding of uh, neuroscience. In um, later half of 2018, you, uh, you moved back to the U.S. to join uh, Facebook AI research. And uh, one of your earlier work at, in, at Facebook is a paper called The Generalization Stability Trade-Off in Neural Networks Pruning. So yeah, would you mind, I guess, you know, sharing some of the properties of pruning algorithms that, you know, influence the stability and generalization in, in uh, deep neural networks? Yeah, so this work was really driven by um, an awesome grad student in, in Florida, Brian Bartleson, who actually, uh, the way I got involved with this work is that he sent me a cold email after reading my paper on single direction for generalization um, with some fairly bombastic claims, you know, showing how kind of some early results that he had you know, were related to the work that I had done. And through that, I started talking to him and we started collaborating on this paper, which, which uh, you know, uh, ended up focusing on this kind of generalization stability trade-off. Um, so what he had observed uh, in that kind of initial results was that uh, he was able to prune large weights uh, during, during training and that that could lead to better performance. Um, if you're familiar with pruning, that's a very surprising result. Um, the most common form of network pruning is what's called magnitude pruning. It's extremely simple um, and yet works fairly well. And basically all you do is you rank all of the weights uh, in a network by their absolute values, by their magnitudes, and then you just remove the smallest K percent of those weights. Um, and the notion here is that the smaller the magnitude of a weight, the less impact it has on the network's output in the you know, activations of the next layer, um, which makes sense. So that makes it super surprising that what Brian had found was that if you actually prune the largest magnitude weights, uh, the network actually gets better. What's going on on there? So, uh, you know, we did a bunch of investigations uh, into this um, and eventually found out that kind of, it turns out that there is this trade-off between the generalization performance of a network and the amount of instability that you uh, add in uh, during training. So basically the more instability you have, the better the generalization uh, of the network would be. Um, and by pruning large weights, we actually introduce instability. Um, what we mean by instability here is what's the change in performance right before and right after we do a pruning event. Um, so if I prune a lot of uh, small weights, then there's very little instability. The network's performance is basically the same after I've done the pruning. Um, but if I prune a lot of large weights, then you'll see that that performance drops as soon as I prune all the large weights because the network's really relying on but it turns out that basically, so long as you don't go too far, you can obviously, I can make things too unstable. I could prune everything, which would be way too much instability. But if I introduce the right amount of instability, I can actually do substantively better uh, generalization performance in networks. And this, I think, is quite an interesting observation that, that you know, can be served as a, as a framework for a lot of the training techniques and regularizers that we use. So for example, uh, gradient noise is kind of a common regularizer which you can view as a, as a form of instability. And uh, one of the things we actually tried was simply just adding noise to the network uh, and found that that could also lead to better performance, kind of showing that it seems to be this more generic trade-off. Trade -off. 
Um, so I think I, I think that that the kind of this is likely to impact the way we view what are the factors which lead to generalization and is some noise actually good and how do we determine how much noise um, is good? Not to mention if we can do this as pruning, then obviously we can also end up with some more compressed models uh, at the end of it, which is always a good thing. For most of 2019, your, your research affair focused on the lottery ticket hypothesis as evidence in a paper such as one ticket to win them all and playing the lottery with rewards and multiple language. And you actually also have written an in-depth article, I believe on, on, on Facebook uh, AI blog called uh, the generalization of lottery tickets in your networks. So can you sort of unpack the background, the main findings, uh, as well as some of the open question, you know, associated with this research problem? Yeah, so if you're unfamiliar with the lottery ticket hypothesis, it's this hypothesis that was proposed by Jonathan Frankel, a graduate student at MIT who I've since collaborated with quite extensively, which I found to be very, very exciting and I think has a lot of really cool implications. Um, so basically, there's this mystery that's been in, in the deep learning community for a while, which is that we can train really big networks, and then once they're fully trained, we can prune them to really small networks with pretty small drops in performance. You know, we can get a network that's maybe a tenth or even a hundredth the size of the full network um, that performs almost as well, um, if not just as well. But if I just take that small network that's, you know, a tenth or a hundredth the size and just try training from scratch, it doesn't work. The network trains to much poorer performance. So, so what's going on there? And a lot of the ideas have kind of been that, well, you need all the, these extra parameters. You need this over-parameterization in order to uh, regularize the learning process or something like that. Um, what Jonathan suggested with the lottery ticket hypothesis is like, no, 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 it doesn't have anything to do with the learning process. You just need to have a good starting point. You just need a good initialization. And so long as you have a good initialization, that's enough. The question, of course, is how do you find these initializations, these good initializations? Um, so what Jonathan tried doing is, he basically said, okay, let me train a network to convergence. I'm going to prune it, and then I'm just going to take the weights that are remaining, and I'm just going to reset them to their initial value. I'm just going to initialize that subnetwork and try training them. And surprisingly, what he found was that if you initialize the weights appropriately, you can actually train them to very high accuracy, even starting with this very small network. And the idea here is that the reason that this doesn't work for the full network is that our initialization distributions are actually very bad. So if I have a big network, and I just take one draw from an initialization distribution, it's very, very, very unlikely that that draw is going to be a good initialization. But alternatively, say I have a network that's much bigger than I need, um, then what I actually have is big network choose subnetworks, or sorry, big network choose small network uh, subnetworks, which is going to explode combinatorially, um, and each of those will have a different draw. What you can kind of view is each of these as a lottery ticket, and when I kind of initialize a bigger network, I'm actually buying way, way more lottery tickets. And that makes it increasingly likely that I'm going to get at least one lucky ticket, uh, and probably more than one lucky ticket, actually, which, uh, if I train that in isolation, will lead to very high performance. So that's really exciting for a couple of reasons. One, it suggests that our initialization attributions are just really very bad, uh, and that they can be made a lot better which to some extent makes sense. A lot of the way we've developed our initialization distributions is heuristically. So we actually name them after people. The most common one now is Kaiming init, uh, or he init, uh, which is named after Kaiming he, who initially discovered ResNets. 
prior to that, and what you still see used for like VGD models uh, is Xavier or Glorow in it, uh, which is named after Xavier Glorow, who published a paper with Yasuo Benjiho about how to initialize neural networks. So uh, it suggests that we probably can do a lot better uh, than our initialization schemes. And it also tells us quite a bit about the role of initialization in ultimate learning. So I, I thought this was a super cool paper and that there are lots of neat things we could do with this. So the first paper, uh, but there are a lot of kind of questions that we need to answer first. If we wanted to use these observations to either find a way to prune early um, so we could find these winning tickets really early, or alternatively, to make a better initialization distribution, which I think is, is a very hard goal, but if we can nail it, uh, would have just a dramatic impact on the field because all of a sudden, all of our models would get better. Um, and even beyond that, we'd be able to train models uh, of the same size as our current models that would act as if they were 10 or 100 times larger. Maybe it would allow us to kind of jump forward on the GPU curve uh, by a couple of years, which could be um, very impactful although very challenging to, to figure out a way to do that. But in order for that to work, basically, there are a couple of questions we want to answer first. The first big question is, are these winning tickets, uh, and the, that we call the winning tickets are that kind of lucky initialization, are they overfit to the particular data set and um, optimizer and architecture that was used to generate them? It turns out that actually finding these winning tickets is actually very expensive. It takes a long time. Um, so if they're overfit, it's not super useful. So in the one ticket to win the model paper, what we basically asked was, could we generate winning tickets in one data, excuse me, in the context of one data set or one optimizer, and then would those same winning tickets work for a different data set or a different optimizer? Um, and it turns out that the answer is yes, uh, which is both encouraging and surprising, <laughs> at least it's surprising to me, you know, because it really suggests that what these winning tickets are learning are generic inductive biases, which are, you know, uniformly good for training, uh, independent of the particular data set. Um, one caveat there, um, we only looked at this in the context of data sets uh, which were somewhat similar, so image data sets um, in the same domain. So I can't say whether a winning ticket for images would also be good for natural language, say. Um, and it's still not clear exactly how you transfer across different architectures because the winning ticket is somewhat ingrained in an architecture. But it at least suggests that these networks aren't completely overfit. Um, and seem to learn these generic inductive biases, which is very encouraging. We also found this interesting observation, which is that if we generate a winning ticket from larger data sets or data sets with more classes, they end up being much more generic. So if I get a winning ticket from ImageNet, that's much more likely to work on other data sets than a winning ticket from MS. So that's the first paper. The second paper was kind of asking uh, another question of kind of where are the bounds of the lottery ticket hypothesis, asking whether it also occurs in domains beyond supervised image classification. So, um, you know, the initial lottery ticket hypothesis paper from Jonathan Frankel just really focused on image data sets. But it's not really clear whether, whether they generalize beyond that or even beyond supervised image classification. So we had this paper uh, that was led by Hanan Yu, uh, along with Yang Gong Tan uh, and Sergey Edinov, where we looked at whether the lottery ticket phenomenon is present in the context of RL uh, and NLP. So we looked at a bunch of classic control and Atari games, and then also looked at some transformers and some LSTM models and found that indeed the effect seems to be actually quite broad um, because a lot of things that are true in supervised image classification are not true elsewhere. Um, but you know, kind of it, it was, it's, it's encouraging again to see that it's quite broad. We also had a paper with, uh, that was led by Mathilde Caron in Paris uh, that looked at whether we could generate winning tickets using self-supervised data and whether those would transfer to supervised image classification. Um, and indeed we found there as well uh, the winning tickets transfer. So it really seems like these winning ticket initializations are learning generic inductive biases uh, that generalize across a number of domains and that uh, this phenomenon is robust 
uh, you know, across a number of domains. You actually deliver a talk at Rework Summit uh, in Montreal last year, talking about all, all these uh, multi-threaded uh, papers and the fighting. So I probably try to include a link to the YouTube videos so people can understand more about your idea. They did the hypothesis of lottery ticket more efficiently. And actually, we also talk a bit about a couple of the open questions at the end of that talk, things like how to uh, generate tickets more efficiently or how to, what, what makes it special. So I think that might be some of the interesting um, research idea that, uh, that can potentially be, be tapped on uh, for the future. An interesting work that you presented earlier this year uh, at, at the Rewalk Summit in San Francisco is called Training Batch Norm and Only Batch Norm on the Expressive Power of Random Features in Convolutional Neural Networks. Uh, essentially, it, it investigate the performance of neural networks when trained only the uh, batch normalization parameters, uh, which is a very common technique these days when, when you design your architecture. So, yeah, can you share a little bit about the experiment from that one? Yeah, so um, this work was done uh, in collaboration with David Schwab and Jonathan Frankel. Uh, Jonathan Frankel being the person I mentioned who initially came up with the lottery ticket hypothesis and has been a, a wonderful collaborator. What we did here was try to understand kind of what's going on with batch norms. So as you mentioned, kind of batch normalization is a technique which, since its introduction in 2015, uh, is basically omnipresent in uh, convolutional neural networks. Uh, it's very, very rare these days to see a CNN that is trained without batch norm. Um, and then there are a number of modifications to batch norm that you see applied other places like layer norm and weight norm and instance norm and group norm, uh, lots of different versions of this. And uh, what batch normalization does is it uh, basically just normalizes the activations, it widens the activations uh, within a batch. Um, and that's mostly what people focus on when they think about batch norm. Um, but it turns out that batch norm actually adds a couple of trainable parameters. Um, it adds a, uh, a, a shift in a scale parameter for each feature. So it normalizes and then it shifts each feature and it scales it. So think of it like y equals m it's plus b. It adds the m and the b. Uh, we call those the gammas and the betas. So in this paper, we kind of wanted to ask, to what extent are those parameters that we're adding actually useful? So we tried an interesting experiment where basically we initialize a, a big neural network, even going all the way up to, I think, ResNet 866s. We froze all of the weights at initialization, except for the gammas and betas in the batch firm layers. Um, and this means that even though we have networks that have you know, many, many millions of parameters, there are only uh, several thousand trainable parameters in these gammas and betas. And really all they're allowed to do is take these random features, uh, which are parameterized by these randomly initialized convolutional filters, and then shift them or rescale them. And we just tried training that. And to our surprise, uh, it turns out this works really well. Now, to be clear, it is not state-of-the-art accuracy. It is not as good as if you were to train the entire network. Um, but it's close to as good. You know, with a, on CIFAR 10, for example, with a ResNet 866, uh, you know, we can get uh, well into the 80s percentage-wise. And we can also do fairly well on ImageNet with this as well which is quite exciting. That that, I think that result isn't actually in the archive version yet, but it's, in the, it's, it's to come in the, the updated version of the paper. What this really suggests is that is kind of twofold. One, random features can be really powerful so long as they're combined appropriately, which you know, is an observation that has been made in the past in the context of uh, kernel machines. Uh, there's a great paper from Ali Rahimi and Ben Rack that actually won the Test of Time Award at NeurIPS a couple years ago, focused on these questions. And then it also shows that batch form is actually doing a lot more than just normalization. And when we think about how these techniques work, uh, it's important that we also think about the learnable parameters that are impacting how our, how our regularizers are functioning. Recently, you have presented a, a couple of work at the ICLR 2020 conference, which is, you know, is being uh, held virtually. 
in, in the paper, the early phase of neural network training, you uh, used the lottery ticket framework, which we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, two questions ago, to uh, rigorously examine the early part of the training. So, uh, you know, what are some of the big takeaways in, in this new work? Yes. So this is another paper with, with Jonathan Frankel and David Schwab. And in this paper, we were trying to uh, understand kind of what's going on in the, in the first little bit of training, the first uh, couple hundred iterations. Um, this is a period of training where kind of there's increasing evidence that it's super duper critically important to the point where it might be actually far more important than the rest of training. What happens in the first couple hundred iterations might be more important than the remaining, you know, million iterations. Uh, like it's a, it's, a, it's a very big deal, it seems. So uh, our goal in this paper was to really start to characterize what's actually happening. And one of the observations we found in the lottery ticket work is that when you move from kind of more simpler data sets to larger, more complex data sets, the lottery ticket effect doesn't actually get a little bit weaker. In order to keep it strong, you actually have to do this thing where instead of rewinding the weights all the way to the initialization, you rewind them close to the initialization, but not quite to the initialization. So to kind of 100 iterations into training or 200 iterations into training, something like that. Um, so still fairly early on, but once the network has learned a little bit. And, and this, this technique is called late rewinding. And that, again, suggests kind of that there's something really critical going on in this first 100 or 200 iterations of training. So in this paper, we really wanted to understand what was going on there. And we used this framework of the lottery tickets as a means to evaluate whether the changes that happened in the first couple hundred iterations of the training uh, were good or bad. Um, it kind of gave, gave, gives us a means to measure the quality of that training procedure. So there are a couple things we kind of invest, a couple of main takeaways from that paper. The first is there's been kind of some previous work focused, suggesting that um, you could get great winning tickets just by keeping their signs constant. So if it's positive or negative, but ignoring the precise magnitude. Um, it turns out why that may be true on smaller data sets, uh, that doesn't seem to be true in these, more, in these larger, more complex data sets. We also found that if we try to do these set series of shuffles to try to basically get the winning ticket initializations to approximate you know, samples drawn IID for some distribution, unfortunately, the winning tickets break. So it really seems like the winning tickets are actually dependent on this joint distribution, at least when using the rewinding, which is kind of discouraging, actually, for this goal of producing uh, winning ticket initializations that we can just sample from to get a network to perform well. The last main observation in that paper was that we could actually approximate what happened in that early phase of training without using any labels whatsoever. So if we um, pre-trained on a self-supervised task, in this case, we did a rotation prediction task where basically you just take an image, you rotate it by zero degrees, 90 degrees, 270 degrees, or 180 degrees, and then just ask the network to output how much it's been rotated. So it's a self-supervised task, doesn't require any labels, and you train on that, you can actually approximate everything that happened in the first couple hundred iterations of training. However, there is a catch. Uh, instead of it taking a couple or hundred iterations, it takes about 40 epochs. So it takes, you know, orders of magnitude longer to do this pre-training without labels in order to get the equivalent performance. But if you do this, you actually can get to the late rewinding point with no labels whatsoever, just based off of data set. And then uh, one other thing to just note there is that uh, we tried to be extremely rigorous comprehensiveness. So we looked at a bunch of different models. We looked at five different models and analyzed basically every property of the early phase of training that we could think of. And the hope would be that that will serve as a, as a data set um, and a benchmark for other people to start building up their own observations about kind of trying to characterize what's happening in this really critical period of learning.
Another paper you also presented at uh, ICR is called Representation Learning Through Latent Canonicalizations. So uh, this work attempt to learn the representation in which the um, semantically meaningful factors of variation such as color or shape can be independently manipulated by learn linear transformation in latent space. And you, you, you call this, this kind of transformation a latent canonicalizers. Yeah, so, you know, would you mind um, talking about this new idea? Yeah, absolutely. So this work was led by uh, Or Latani and then done in collaboration with a number of people at Stanford and Georgia Tech, Judy Hoffman, uh, Leo Guibas, Jonas Sridhar. It's approaching this problem of how do we learn semantically meaningful representations, which we can then later use, use for many different tasks. In this context, we evaluated in a sim to real setting, which is when you pre-train in a simulator and then you try to generalize to real data. A lot of work that has tried to get at this problem has focused on regularizing the structure of the representation itself. So basically saying, whatever you learn, it should look like this. Typically, uh, kind of one of the most common examples of this is, is or most uh, well-known examples of this is the beta VAE, which uh, basically takes a variational autoencoder framework, has kind of two terms, a reconstruction loss and a KL loss, which says that the, the, the representation should look like an isotropic calcium and just makes that part really, really important. So it says, whatever you do, make sure your, your net representation looks like an isotropic calcium. The idea in this paper was to actually turn that on its head a bit and to say, we don't want to regularize what the representation should look like, but we do want to constrain the way the representation can be manipulated. So we want to say the representation can look however it likes, but I better be able to manipulate it linearly to change some individual semantic features of variation, um, such as color or shape or things like that. Um, so the way that we did this was we created a simulator, first for SBHN, if you're not familiar, is uh, the Street View House Number data set. Uh, which is basically uh, a bunch of, it's kind of like a more complicated MS, a bunch of digits uh, that were pulled from Google Street View images, addresses of houses. So we made a simulator for that setting. And in, the nice thing about the simulator is we can control every aspect of the data there. We can control, control the font size, we can control the background color, the foreground color, uh, the rotation of the digits, gear, and things like that. Um, and each of those is an individual factor of variation. So we want to be able to separate the color of a digit from the identity of the digit or the color from the font, or the scale, uh, or the background color. So uh, doing that, we basically train a, a model in an autoencoder framework where uh, we learn these linear transformations, but when they're applied to the representation, can manipulate just one of those attributes and set them to a, a, a fixed but arbitrary value. This is what we call kind of canonicalization. It sets it to a canonical value, and it operates in the latent space, hence uh, latent canonicalization. And we train uh, this kind of big model with several different losses where it has kind of a standard autoencoder loss, a latent canonicalization loss, and then a latent canonicalization loss for several different paths of canonicalizers. We also do pairs of canonicalizers and things like that. And then also a uh, digit loss where it's a kind of a standard classification loss. Um, and we train all that in this simulated setting. And then we take the representation we learned, kind of just the first half of this network, and we now fine tune that on an, a, a digit recognition class with real data. So now we take real SPHN and we say, okay, based off of this representation, how well can I learn to do this, except critically with only a little bit of labeled data. So when, for example, say when I have only 10 labeled examples per class, um, so that's what we call the 10 shot case, uh, or maybe with 20 labeled examples per class or so on and so forth. And basically we find that it works very well. It works substantially better than a lot of baseline methods. 
uh, when we do this. Um, and we also tried a version of this with ImageNet where we kind of made a, a simulated ImageNet by using uh, meshes from ShapeNet and kind of just putting them on random textures. Um, so we didn't try that hard to make the simulators look exactly like the real data sets. They do not look exactly like the real data sets. But so long as they're close enough, um, this method of latent canonicalization can lead to, to representations which generalize much better to kind of the, the real data. And then we also went in and did a bunch of analysis of kind of what was going on in these representations and found that the representations end up being far more linearly decodable than you get if you don't apply this method. So it really seems like it actually is linearizing this representation such that we get independent linear factors of variation. So I think this is very much a first step, but I, I'm quite excited about this idea and kind of various ways we can take it of thinking kind of how can we um, find other ways to constrain the ways that representation can be manipulated to uh, lead to better and better uh, representations. I see. Yeah, and I believe this seems to be a problem. You know, it's just uh, quite important because it, it kind of like represents the first step that allows us to do models with, uh, to, to handle, you know, real scenario with, with sparse data, right, sparse input. And that's why the whole idea behind seem to realize, you know, you try to train on simulation, you try to generalize that on a physical or real world scenario. And it seems like, you know, I personally myself also try to learn a lot about autonomous colors and, 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 you know, latent space and latent dimension. So this works certainly something that, 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 uh, that, that is very interesting to, to kind of learn more. And it seems like when you mentioned it, it is uh, linearly decodable, that means you can more easily to, to explain the, you know, make it more interpretable. You can, you can dig into the weights and try to figure out, you know, what, what particular inputs had, us, had more influence. So what's the predictive power, if I got it correctly? Yeah, absolutely. So your, your latest research work is called uh, Selectivity Considered Harmful, Evaluating the Causal Impact of Class Selectivity in Deep Neural Networks. And uh, essentially, you know, it, it investigates the causal impact of uh, class selectivity on the network function. And uh, we talked a little bit of, of earlier, but essentially this, this is a follow-up work from one of your earliest paper on the importance of single direction for uh, generalization. So you know, what, what is the premise behind this paper? Yeah, so going way back to the beginning of, of, of this podcast, uh, when I was kind of talking about that, that first paper and how we kind of had two halves to it, one of which was really focusing on, are cat neurons actually important? This paper is really following up on that and trying to uh, look at that more in a causal framework versus a correlation framework. So previously, uh, we weren't actually causally manipulating the, the network. We were removing things, uh, but we were looking at, at the correlation between an individual unit, uh, and that was the ultimate goal. Um, but what's nice about deep learning is we can control the training of the network. Um, so this work was led by Matthew Levitt, who's an AI resident working with me at FAIR, who's done some really wonderful work here. And uh, what he did was to add a secondary loss term, an auxiliary loss to the network, to basically regularize against cat neurons. To so say, let's learn this network, but learn it without any neurons which are highly selective for a given class. Um, and then we also tried going the other way, where we say, okay, regularize it so that I want lots of these. Give me more, and let's see how it works. And we found some pretty surprising results. So first off, we found that in the context of uh, tiny image nets, we could remove uh, you know, almost all of the selective neurons with almost no degradation in performance whatsoever. The, the, the test accuracy of the network is almost exactly the same. So networks really don't rely on these selective in, uh, neurons, and in fact, if we remove uh, most of them, but not all of them, performance actually goes up a little bit. So performance actually gets a little bit better. Uh, in the context of CIFAR, performance doesn't get better, but it also doesn't really get worse either. So it seems mostly flat when you do this. But then if we increase the number of selective units, 
um, in both TinyVision and CFAR, performance falls off a cliff. So almost immediately, as we tell the network, give me more selective units, um, all of a sudden the network stops performing well. And this is really surprising because it suggests that networks are learning uh, as many class selective units as they can before it starts hurting them, even though they don't need to, and it might even be better not to. So this is kind of why we call the paper uh, selectivity considered harmful, because it seems like selectivity is, 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 an, is something which networks have a natural bias towards, but which is not actually a good thing. And again, this kind of gets into this issue of kind of how deep neural networks are always making things harder for us. Uh, it would be wonderful from an interpretability standpoint if the number of selective units was all we needed to know to understand how a network works, because it's a pretty easy thing to analyze. Um, unfortunately, it seems like looking for individually selective units might be much more of a red herring, where it's something that kind of seems really interesting, but actually is, 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 is a symptom of a much more deep cause. So, so I'm excited about this work because I think it really starts to, to show you know, more concretely that even if we remove all of the selective units from a network, we can still do a really good job and can even do better. And we also have some work that we're working on now, you know, showing that you get even some other advantages that are, that are nice from removing all these selective units. So I'll be excited to talk about that once we're ready. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Yeah, looking forward to that. Reflecting on your research career thus far, what could be your advice for individuals who want to make a den in AI research? Yeah, so I think there are a couple things. So one thing I would say, which is just at a meta level, is uh, one of the things that you know you may notice from kind of hearing me talk about all these works is that um, a lot of the work that I've done is focused more on asking questions about neural networks rather than saying, how do I simply engineer a network that's going to be better? Um, I've done a, a, some of that, but uh, a lot of the work is about taking kind of a, a slightly slower, more rigorous approach to taking the things that, taking a lot of these questions that we take for granted and asking, you know, can we think a little more deeply about that? Is that really true on a superficial level, um, beyond a superficial level? And I think there's a, there are tons of questions like that. Uh, that are likely to be super important. Deep learning is an empirical science, but it's not really treated as such in a lot of ways. We make a lot of statements that we don't have that great evidence for. I would encourage a lot of junior researchers to find those statements and test them. See if it's actually true, because a lot of times you'll find that it's not true, and it might lead to something better through that. So I think that's kind of a, a big thing. The other thing I would say is to uh, kind of, there's a famous Wayne Gretzky quote about skating to where the skate to where the puck is going, not to where the puck is. Um, and I think there's there's a lot of validity to that. Try to look at the field and think about kind of where it's going to be in a year or two versus where it is now. I think that's the way to to do the most impactful research. Um, also, uh, it's worth noting that you know a lot of research which becomes tremendously impactful seemed uninteresting at first. So it's worth persevering with ideas to kind of see them through. That said, you can go too far with that. At a certain point, if an idea has kind of consistently not working, you know, it might not be the best uh, prioritization to keep on going in that direction. Um, but there's a balance there of finding the right amount of perseverance while at the same time, you know, making sure not to persevere too high of far. That's actually a really tough balance that I think is something that almost all scientists struggle with. But yeah, I think that would be my advice. Really focus on kind of trying to take a rigorous approach uh, to what you're doing. Think carefully, like it's, it's science, do good science. Uh, you want, it's, it's much better to take a little bit longer to publish a paper and to make sure that it's right than uh, to publish a paper earlier with you know, not enough data that ends up being thrown out later. <laughs> I see, yeah. And um, yeah, just, just really kind of going off of what 
what you just said, you know, you mentioned the idea of, you know, going uh, where the field is going to go. You know, you, you have been a peer review at various academic conferences, such as, you know, ICLR and NeurIPS. So what are some of the trends in, in the AI research community that you are most excited about, you know, in recent years and maybe uh, in the next, you know, two or three years? Yeah, so definitely the trend I'm most excited about these days is self-supervised learning. I've mentioned it a couple times, you know, today, um, but I think this is going to be uh, really another image that moment for, for deep learning. As I imagine many of your listeners know, most of what we do with deep learning right now requires labels. Um, it's supervised, it's some form of supervised learning. That's not true for RL, but, but a lot of, uh, you know, image classification and things like that are all supervised. Um, and it's very expensive to get labels. And we know that these models tend to be quite brittle. One of the things that's been really exciting over the last year is to see how much better models trained without labels are getting. Um, and what's exciting about that is not only do you get uh, models that can be trained with far, far, far fewer labels, uh, if not any labels, um, but it also means that you learn models which can be used in many different contexts and maybe even learn much more robust representations, which uh, learn semantically uh, what's going on in the world rather than just exploiting these statistical regularities. So I think there's a, a lot to do in self-supervised learning. The field is moving there extremely rapidly. Uh, it kind of feels like 2012 with an initial models for uh, ImageNet following AlexNet. And, and I think that we're going to see a lot of progress there in the next couple of years. And I, and I think likely the way we train models in three, four years will be completely different than the way we do it now. Uh, self-supervised, I think, will be the, the main thing. Um, and I'm not alone in, in saying that. Jan McCunn has also been very, very loud about, about kind of banging the drum for self-supervised learning. And I completely agree with him. I think it's, it's definitely the most exciting thing that, that I've seen. Yeah, at this point of our conversation, I want to wrap it out with the closing segment, in which I'm going to ask you three rapid-fire questions, and you can give uh, tactical answers for, for the listeners. Number one is that name three people in the machine learning and AI universe whose work you really admire. So a couple people, I think. So yeah, so number one, I think Sammy Bengio who's someone I've, I've been fortunate to collaborate with in the past, who is the, the leader of kind of Google Brain's research uh, department. I just think is a, he's a fantastic scientist, spends a lot of time on mentorship, um, and really cares about doing the science right. Um, you know, even though, even though he's, still, he's extremely senior at this point, he spends a lot of time thinking about each and every paper he's involved with and kind of what can we really say about each of those papers. So I really look at Sammy. Another person is a professor at MIT, uh, Alexander Madry, who along with uh, his really talented students, um, has just published, I think, a number of works over the last four years, um, almost all of which, when I've read them, have kind of hit myself in the head and been like, oh, why didn't I do that? To me, as a scientist, it's kind of the biggest compliment I can give to someone else, uh, is that when I read the paper, I'm like, oh, I should have done that. You know, but, but all, of his, all of the papers that they've worked on have uh, very simple methodological ideas and simple experiments that have actually a lot to say about the uh, areas they study. And then the third person uh, is Jason Yasinski, who kind of has been, I think, one of the earliest people in the field, uh, really thinking more critically about these why questions and how questions of how do neural networks work. You know, a lot of the earliest papers on, on, on those topics are from Jason, and he continues to do great work uh, in that direction. Second question is that name one book that you would recommend for people to develop a better analytical mindset. Yeah, so I'm going to pick a slightly different uh, choice here. Uh, it, the, the book I, 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 would, I would say is The Idea Factory uh, by John Gertner, which is actually a history of science book. Um, it focuses on the history of Bell Labs, which if you're not familiar with Bell Labs, Bell Labs was uh, AT&T's uh, research arm. 
uh, when AT&T was a monopoly up until the 80s, um, although Bell Labs persisted a little beyond that. Um, and this place is, is just was completely amazing in that the entire modern world was basically invented at Bell Labs. So just going through a couple of the Bell Labs uh, most famous inventions, uh, the transistor, cell phone technology, solar cells, lasers, satellites, the transatlantic telephone cable, the first video conferencing, um, oh, and like this little uh, computer system called Unix. So, so Bell Labs like really just invented everything and it did it, the, the, the mission of Bell Labs was to make communication better. It was this very high level abstract mission and the organization was structured such that they hired really smart, talented people and they let them run wild. They trusted the scientists to know what the, the best way to spend their time. And uh, I, I just think learning more about kind of how that's done in the meta process of science um, has just been a, really useful for me. And also, you know, makes me very grateful to be at a place like FAIR, which I think in many ways was directly modeled, uh, modeled uh, after Bell Labs. In fact, Jan LeCun, uh, who started FAIR, um, actually developed ComNets at Bell Labs uh, in the late 80s. So I think he was, he was very uh, inspired by kind of the structure of Bell Labs. So yeah, I think, I, think, I think in general, thinking about the meta process of science uh, can be really beneficial. You can learn a lot about how to prioritize questions and projects. Because ultimately, as a scientist, our most limited resource is time. There are so many questions to answer and so little time in which to do it. Um, so thinking about ways to structure organizations and, and ways in which to make your time go with the furthest uh, is really beneficial, I think. Then lastly, imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the aspiring machine learning researchers on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Yeah, so I'm going to go with kind of the good science theme here again uh, and say something which is a pet peeve of mine in all of research is the reticence to publish negative results. Um, and I think that especially as a junior researcher, this really hits hard because everyone who's done research knows that most things don't work. You know, most of the time you're banging your head against the wall and the wall is unflinching and your head is getting hurt. <laughs> you know, you're getting bloodied by it. You try an idea, it doesn't work out. You, try, you modify it, you try it again, it doesn't work out. You keep on doing this. Um, eventually, hopefully, you find something that works and that's interesting. But uh, there's a lot of learning that went from that initial period of kind of starting to try things that don't work out up until you find something where you get a positive result that you can publish at an ML conference. There's a lot of value, I think, in publishing negative results. For example, one of the papers that I mentioned earlier, the early phase of neural network training, is very much, I think, a, a series of negative results. You know, there's some spin there, and we were able to make kind of, I think, a lot of interesting statements that have impact on future work. Um, but ultimately, uh, we were hoping to find a way to approximate initialization for lottery tickets and ways in which to do early printing with lottery tickets, uh, and that didn't really work out. So instead, we pivoted the paper to say, hey, we've, we've done a lot of cool stuff here, you know, these results are going to be useful for other researchers. How can we put this at, how can we spin this in a way that uh, we can still get these results out there? And I think a lot of the times you can do that. So that was not a tweet. That was a lot longer than, than 240 characters uh, or 280 characters. But um, I think it, it's really worth it to put the time into publishing negative results. And, and I think that people would admire you for it because people do always like it when they see these papers. Um, though you might have a more difficult time getting them into ICML or NERVS or iClear. <laughs> Brilliant. So yeah, Ari, I appreciate, you know, you spending time with me today, you know, to uh, be in my podcast and really enjoy learning a bit about your neuroscience background, uh, you know, your PhD at Harvard, some of your uh, work on understanding neural network generalization, representation learning, and sort of the generic understanding um, of, of neural networks, both at DeepMind and at Facebook, as well as, you know, a variety of 
other uh, you know, thoughtful advice in terms of uh, how to do good research and how to um, make an impact in the community. So I'm sure to uh, include um, you know, all, all the papers, the videos and the blog posts in the show notes so people can have a chance to kind of uh, you know, learn a bit about um, what, you, what you talk about in, in this conversation further. Uh, yeah, so overall I enjoyed and I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks again for inviting me. It was, it was, it was a lot of fun. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.